Are you sure? There it is. And out of heaven came a voice. <laughs> well, let's see. I hope that you got used to this this morning, but we're going to have several nights to practice it. I suspect that by Wednesday night I want a crescendo, okay? But let's try this tonight. First of all, would you admit it was a really nice day out there, wasn't it? Come on, folks. Doesn't God do good work, right? So this, well, the Bible says this is the evening the Lord has made. You shall rejoice in it. So let's try this. Come on. Good evening. Still needs work, but it's coming along. Uh, again, tonight we're going to be talking about the creation's view of marriage. However, tomorrow night we're going to be talking about the single most important issue we could talk about when it comes to the scientific acceptance of creation or evolution. That's going to be the issue of time. So tomorrow night we're going to talk about time. Tuesday night we're going to talk about how there's no truth to human evolution, and we're going to show you how to debunk the fact that uh, there is no such thing as evolution. We're going to show you how to debunk their favorite methodology. And I assure you that if you'll come Tuesday night, again, you're going to have the most fun that you can possibly have this week. Um, we are going to be talking about dry bones. And some of you are going to think I'm teaching out of Ezekiel. Hello? You have heard of the Valley of Dry Bones, right? But believe me, I can make bones fun. Hello? And then again, tomorrow, you know, Wednesday night, we're going to end with our big presentation, right? Come on, the one on dinosaurs. Hello. <laughs> well, in talking about the creationist view of marriage, first of all, again, I want to introduce this the subject that stands alone. It's on, of course. But the Lord gave me the message after my first trip to Russia in July of 1994. I took it back into Russia in November of 94. I probably taught on this 300 times since then. And I really believe that of all of our messages, it's probably the single most important one. I hate to disappoint you, but tonight I'm only going to be able to do about 60% of the message for the sake of time. Therefore, of course, we are making the video available to you if you want to hear the complete message. And I assure you, you want to hear the whole message. But we have to be cognizant of time and school and so forth tomorrow. Now, in talking about the creation's view of marriage, we have to take a look in the book of Genesis. So if you would, please turn to Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to start reading at verse 26, 27, and oh, thank you. It's good. It's good. Yeah. Yep. We'll try it. We'll, we'll see if it's good or not. <laughs> they'll, they'll be the judge of that. <laughs> well, you can hear me, can't you? Thank you, sir. Trying to get this on real quick here. Get this over here. So what we're going to do is we're going to go to Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to go to verse 26, 27, and the first half of 28. I do. I do mind. I love to answer questions. I even do whole Q&A sessions. I love it, but we only do it at the table before and after each service. So if you will take a look at Genesis chapter 1, 26, 27, we're going to read the first half of 28 as well. So if you'll take a look at this, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And the narrative continues from there. Now, let me ask all of you a simple question. Uh, when you read this, 
there's something not quite right there, if you'll think about it just for a moment. And I'm talking about grammatically, there's something just not right. In the English language, would you agree it's incorrect to mix singulars and plurals in the same sentence? Okay, again, you can, you can talk back, folks, it's fine, okay? Just, if you're not gonna talk, at least blink your eyes. So would you agree it's not correct in English grammar to mix singulars and plurals in the same sentence, correct? And yet, when we read this text, there's a mixture of singulars and plurals. Would you agree? And so, why? God is trying to get your attention. Now, when I sometimes teach on this, I say, have you ever done the vegetarian study of the Bible? You've never done the vegetarian study of the Bible. Oh, the vegetarian study of the Bible, that's where you study about all the lettuces. It starts in Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us, right? Now here we're talking about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, correct? Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, I want to start with this word here, image. Because it says that God made us in his image, correct? So what does the word image actually mean? The Hebrew word that is used here actually means, well, it's the origination of our word photograph. So if you read this in Hebrew, basically it says that God made us in a photographic image. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be made in the photographic image of God? Well, first of all, uh, let's think for a second. If I were to go out in the parking lot, let's say, and I had a camera and I turned around and I took a a picture of the church here, um, took it down and actually developed it, printed it on paper, which almost nobody does anymore, right? Ah, come on, folks, get real. Uh, but if I were to, tell me, what would I have an image of on the paper? Okay, this is just interactive, folks. If I took a picture of this structure here uh, and got it printed on paper, what would I have an image of on the paper? Excuse me? I'm glad that several of you said building. This is not the church. You are the church. This is just a building, correct? But... Um, Well, what does the Bible say God is? God is spirit. Thank you. And so let's think about this. I'm a scientist. I can tell you we do not have the technology to take the photograph of a spirit. Did you all hear that? We can't do it, right? But I'm I'm sorry, but I work alone. True, and it's contagious, apparently. (laughs) But God is spirit. We cannot take the photograph of a spirit. We don't have the technology. But pretend for a second. Just pretend. What if we could? So if I take the picture of a spirit, print it on photographic paper, what am I going to have an image of on the paper? Come on, folks. I said, if you could, what would I have an image of on the paper? Spirit. Spirit. The Bible does not say that we are made in the physical image of God. The Bible says we're made in the spiritual image of God. But there's a very important word after that. Did you hear when it says, according to our likeness? Now that word translated likeness out of Hebrew, it's called a qualifying word in Hebrew. It's a word that sets the limits. 
It's like putting a picture frame around a picture. Doesn't the picture frame set the limits of the picture, correct? That everything inside the picture frame is picture, everything outside is not, correct? And so the Bible says you and I are made in the spiritual image of God, but there are limits. There are attributes we will never have that God does have. And what it says is this, you and I have every attribute of God. It is humanly possible to have, but there are limits. You're not God. You're never going to become God. And he has attributes that we'll never, ever have. But in as much as it is humanly possible, we have every attribute of God it is humanly possible to have. And as a scientist, I find this interesting. We can use cause and effect reasoning to argue back to the attributes of God. And, and let me show you how it works. Uh, for example, um, I know that God loves. Now, how do I know that God loves? It's very simple because I do. Some of you may remember if you were here this morning, I talked about purpose. And I mentioned that no one can create anything greater than themselves. Is that correct? And so I know that God loves because I love. And he cannot put something within me he does not have or cannot do. And we can expand that a bit. So let's think. Um, there are 7.4 billion people alive on earth today. Every one of them has the capacity to love. Did you hear that? Come on, folks. I didn't say they were all loving. I just said they all have the capacity to love, correct? Now, using cause and effect reasoning, if I see 4.7 billion people alive on earth today, each with the capacity to love, what would be the only adequate cause? Well, it would have to be an infinite source of love. And therefore, I know that God is not only loving, I know that he is the infinite source of love. Y'all with me? You know, I hate to tell you this, but some of you are looking at me like a cow looking at a new gate. Come on, you know how a cow looks at a new gate, right? It goes, where'd that come from? So, well, let me give you another example. I know that God has a sense of humor. Now, how do I know God has a sense of humor? Well, because I have a sense of humor. Most of you aren't used to it yet, but I've got one. And by the same analogy, he is the infinite source of humor. So uh, besides that, you know God's got a sense of humor. He made us, right? And so we can use cause-effect reasoning to argue back to the attributes of God. And here on day six of the week of creation, God creates man and woman. I want to point out something to you. We are all made in the spiritual image of God. But in order for God, who is spirit, to make himself manifest on the earth in a way that we might try to grasp something about his attributes, his emotions, his characteristics, he had to make both a man and a woman to do it. Did you hear that? In order for God, who is spirit, to make himself manifest on the earth in a way that we might try to grasp something about his attributes, his emotions, his characteristics, he had to make both a man and a woman to do it. If you think about it, men and women do have the same emotions and so forth, attributes, characteristics, except they have them in different proportions. Think with me. Um, well, men, would you agree, 
women comfort better than men, generally speaking. Okay, guys, this was your time to shine. I said women comfort, generally speaking, better than men. Aha. Uh-huh. But there are some that are good at doing it. And for instance, uh, some male nurses and so forth. But in general, women are better at it. But yet men do have the ability to comfort. It, we have the same attributes. We just have them in different proportions. And so here we have the preparation of the spirit of the man we call Adam and the woman we call Eve. But where does the body come into existence? Let me explain, too. People read the Bible sequentially, but they forget it isn't sequentially written. The body is described coming into existence in chapter 2, but it still occurred on day 6 of the week, 1. To understand how God writes the Bible, and I want to caution you, there are people who will say to you that there are two creation accounts, the one in Genesis chapter 1 and then another one in chapter 2. This is absolutely erroneous. It is not correct. You know, God is a perfect author. <clears throat> okay, so remember, that's when you say amen, folks. It's, I said, God is a perfect author. Amen. How many of you have ever read any kind of a technical paper, a scientific paper, economic paper, uh, something of that sort, uh, you know, papers that, that are in technical journals, right? Think with me, how are they written? You have a title for the article, then you have an abstract what you're going to prove in your article, correct? And then you have the body of the article, is that right? Well, God writes the Bible in exactly the same way. There's a title, it's called the Bible. But Genesis chapter 1, 1, through the second half of, or through the first half, I should say, Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, that is the abstract. It's the outline of what occurred on the creation week. And then starting with the second half of verse 4, God gives us details. And so what we're studying occurred on day 6 of the week of creation, but it's the quick synopsis, the quick skeleton in chapter 1. And God created people on day 6, the last thing to be created on day 6. What we have in Genesis chapter 1, 26, 27, 28, is when God prepares the spirit of Adam and Eve... But where does the body come into existence? Well, you have to go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. So if you go to Genesis 2, 7, remember it occurs on day 6. But it says in Genesis 2, 7, The Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, first of all, uh, let's think about that for a second. It says that God formed man of the dust, Correct. God did not speak Adam and Eve into existence. He spoke the sun, the moon, the stars, the other things into existence. He simply spoke them into existence because he is sovereign. But when it comes to the man, I want you to think about this. As a matter of fact, we might say it this way. As God goes from creating the universe to people, God gets more and more intimate with his creation. I mean, think with me for just a second. Um, God just spoke the sun, moon, and stars into existence, right? Uh, you, you have read the story, right? <laughs> Hello? But when it comes to plants, he gets a little closer to his creation. Now, you know, God just spoke the universe into existence. Just to give you some idea of what that means. We, we know of over 1 
hundred billion galaxies. Those galaxies average in the areas of 200 million stars each. That's the average. Now our galaxy, we live in the galaxy called the Milky Way. Ours is a particularly large galaxy. We've got about three trillion stars. And God says he named each and every one with its own individual name. Hello? Now if he can do that, I don't think he's got a lot of problems counting the hairs on your head. Is that correct? I mean, I give you more, well, less and less to think about every year, but nonetheless. Um, hello? That's a big God, would you agree? And he just spoke all those into existence with no more effort than you would take one breath. But when it comes to the plants, it's a little more casual and a bit more closer. He says, let the earth bring forth the plants. You know, it's a, a little closer, but it's, it's still casual, would you agree? But think about what he did when he created the body of Adam. He reached down into an earth that he had spoken into existence, and he selected one atom at a time. It's absolutely true. Every atom in your body is common in the dust of the earth. And he hand-selected the, uh, well, the atoms one at a time, and he hand-assembles well, hand the body of the man. Now, would you agree with me that hand-assembling a man's body is about as intimate as you can get? Hello? Oh. Well... God actually forms the body of the man, one atom at a time, taking out the dust he's spoken into existence. And that person's body, Adam's body, comes into existence. But it is not animate. Everything is there that's necessary for life, but it's not alive. Now, all the tissues, everything was there necessary for life, it was not alive. And then it says that God breathes the breath of life into the man. Now you have to understand some words. The word translated breath of life here is actually the Hebrew word nefesh. Nefesh. And the word nefesh is translated in three basic ways in the early chapters of Genesis. It means life, soul, and blood. The word nefesh, life, soul, blood. Would you agree the Bible says the life is in the blood, correct? Now, I teach in medical universities on occasion, and blood is technically a tissue, medically speaking, okay? It's the only tissue that really moves around inside the body. Now, would you agree if the blood isn't moving around on the inside, you are not moving around on the outside? Hello? But the word soul, <clears throat> the word soul actually means the intellect, the emotion, and the will. The word soul is intellect, emotion, and will. What you think, what you feel, how you tell your body to move around. That is your soul. And that is what makes the body animate. And so God hand assembles the body of the man, but he's not animate, he's not alive. Then God takes the nefesh, the soul, and he breathes it into the body of the man. Now I would like to share something with you that is not in the Bible. It is in the writing of the ancient rabbis, but it is not in the Bible. Um, the ancient rabbis reasoned about this, and they said, how could such a great, awesome, magnificent, unfathomable God, how could he breathe into the nostrils of a man the breath of life? That's kind of a good question, wouldn't you agree? And they reasoned about it, and then they finally came to the conclusion, well, he must have used a funnel. 
Now, how do you make a funnel in the ancient times? You took a ram's horn and you cut the tip off. And so when you took a ram's horn and cut a tip off, you made a funnel. Have any of you ever seen Jewish worship? You ever see them blowing the shofars or the shofarats? The shofarats, that's the antelope horns, the long horns. It means the great shofar. But have you ever seen them doing that, at least on the video? Do you know why they do that? They do that because they say, this is the way in which they return the breath of God to him through the instrument by which it was received. Just thought I'd share that with you. Now, with that in mind, what happens next? God then takes the spirit of Adam prepared beforehand, puts it in, inside his body, and Adam becomes the first human being with body, soul, and spirit. When it says here that he became a living being, is that what the translation you have there in your Bibles? He became a living being? Well, here's the problem with translations. First of all, I don't really do much with translations. I work with interpretation. Interpretation is a much higher level. And so when I'm doing my foreign work, I don't work with translators. It's too mechanical. I work with interpreters. It's a much, much higher level of understanding. And so there's a word left out in the English translation. You see, you're only human if you have a spirit. And so it should say he became a living human being. Are you with me? And that word is left out because of the translation. But that's what it actually means. And so God makes the body of the man, adds the nefesh, the soul, the life, the blood, and it becomes alive. And then he adds the spirit of Adam to that body, and he becomes the first complete whole human man in human history, body, soul, and spirit. Now, I'm going to ask you to do something twice tonight. Now, this is just role-playing, folks. This is just, just to think, okay? But twice tonight, I'm going to ask you to say to yourself, if I were God. And this is your first chance, okay? So I'm going to just say to you, just for a moment, this is just role-playing, think for a moment, if I were God, right? Now, if you were God and you had just made the very first man in human history, body, soul, and spirit. Please tell me, what's the next thing you would create? What's the next thing you'd create? Excuse me? What? Food. Uh, we'll get to that moment. We are going to get to that momentarily. I'll repeat the question. If, if you were God and you had just made the very first complete whole human being, a man in human history, what is the next thing you would create? The other half. Other half of what? Company. Yeah. You know, I, I somehow I think you guys are reluctant to speak up. I have had one guy who said a dog. Not the right answer. Well, I give you a third and last chance. So if you were God and you just made the first, first man in human history, what's the next thing you would create? A female. Of what? Oh, a woman. <laughs> Finally, we got an answer we can deal with. Um, a woman. You know, personally, I love that answer. 
I do, a woman. I, I love that answer. I think it's a great answer. I've been married 53 years. I think that's a great answer. It's not the right answer, but I think it's a great answer. Now, I'm talking about marriage tonight. Are there any ladies here? I'll repeat the question. Any ladies here? Yes. Ladies, I'm expecting a lot of support for you tonight. I'm talking about the subject of marriage. Hello? So ladies, I'm expecting a lot of support. And I would like to point out to you, what was the next thing God actually did? Notice that God takes Adam out to the garden and God plants the garden. Now, why does God plant the garden? Well, think with me. Adam was the last thing to come along and he had never seen God work. He didn't know what work was. And so, well, God takes him out to the garden God plants the garden and shows him what work is, and then he says, now you're to do the same thing. I'd also like to point out to you, there are people who tell jokes about the oldest profession in the world. But when they do, they're quite wrong. What is the oldest profession in the world? It is agriculture. That's the oldest profession in the world. And uh, if any of you read my belt buckle, it says farmhouse. And, uh, well, think with me for just a second. Agriculture is the oldest industry in the world. And if you do not understand basic concepts of agriculture, you cannot understand 90% of the Bible. The Bible is written in agrarian language to an agrarian people. And so you have to have a fundamental understanding of agriculture to understand the Bible. And, uh, but uh, now ladies, remember, ladies, I'm here to help you. Remember that, okay? Please notice, um, well, God creates agriculture. That's the next thing he creates after the man. Is that right? But then if you would please look down... Um, would you agree, this is still at a time of perfection, is that correct? So what really is the next thing that God created after Adam? He created work. That's what he created really, was work, and it was agriculture, but it was work, correct? And so this is still a time of perfection. I mean, sin doesn't come along until chapter 3, correct? So that means that work is honorable, work is good, and work is a part of perfection, is that correct? Ah, and this is a time when Adam could walk and talk with God in the garden. Is that correct? Come on, they had perfect fellowship, correct? And, and Adam could walk and talk with God. Sin had not yet separated man from a holy God. Is that correct? But then if you would please notice verse 18. Then God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So God says it's not good for man to be alone. He's going to make a helper suitable for Adam. Um, I don't know about you, by the way. I read the word helper. Anybody here read the word slave? Excuse me? No? Anybody here read the word punching bag? No? Well, uh, I read the word helper. And then I want you to understand, the word helper is not a word of subservience. The word helper is a word of equality. Did you hear that? The word helper is not a word of subservience. The word helper is a word of equality. And if you do not believe me, think with me for just a moment. 
Now, you are sitting in those nice padded chairs. Isn't that, come on, folks, that's really good stuff, isn't it? But how many of you remember being in a church that had those old oak wooden pews? Hello? Ah, yes, yes. Now, if you unbolt one of those things, they are heavy. Hello? Now, I am still a very strong, virulent, 75-year-old missionary. And if you were to un... Thanks for the affirmation, folks. But if you were to unbolt one of those pews, um, I could literally move it a few inches at a time by myself. But I can still easily lift up one end without any problem at all. Now, let's see. Um, That is San Francisco, right? Now, well, I was born in San Francisco, you know. So, uh, Mr. 49er, sir, uh, you're still feeling strong and virulent, is that right? Okay, so you could pick up the other part of the pew, right? The other end, is that right? Now, let's say this was one of those old oak pews, and I pick up one end, you pick up the other end, and we move it from here out into the area here in the open on the other side of the wall, and we set it down. Uh, Once we had did that, please tell me, uh, which one of us was more important in the process? Excuse me? Oh, neither one of us was more important because we helped each other. Is that correct? And the word helper is not a word of subservience. It's a word of equality. And God says it's not good for a man to be alone. But please tell me, was Adam alone? Oh, come on, folks. Was Adam alone? No. I mean, God was there, right? The last time I looked, you plus God makes a majority. Hello? <laughs> so Adam was not alone. God was there with him, correct? In perfect fellowship. And so when we look at this word translated alone, what does it really mean? Again, we also always want to go to the conceptual understanding. And so when God says it's not good for man to be alone, it means this. Even when a A man has God in his life, 100 total, complete percent. Adam could walk and talk with God, correct? Sin didn't separate. So it means that even when a man has God in his life, 100 total, complete percent, a man is incomplete. That's what that word alone means. A man is incomplete, And God says, it's not good for a man to be incomplete. Are you with me? Now, I'm going to give you a second opportunity to say to yourself, if I were God. Okay? So in your minds, just for a moment, you know, if I were God. Now, if you were God and you had just said, it's not good for a man to be incomplete, I'm going to make a helper uh, for him to complete him. Uh, Well, if you were God, what is the next thing you're going to do? Uh, this is just like a big class folks so under those what would be the next thing you would do if you were God complete the man uh, the man's already complete himself but what would you do to complete him uh, in the sense that he's still biologically complete I mean, hello make him, make, him, make him a partner did you say I would like to point out to you the Bible says that God made Adam and Eve not Adam and Steve Hello? 
Oh, I think she's trying to say make a woman. Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I love that answer. Make a woman. Yeah, I, I love that answer. I think that's a great answer. I, I really love that answer. It's not the right answer, but I love it. <laughs> what is the next thing that God does do? He says to Adam, okay, I want you to name the animals. Now, think with me for a minute. How many of you uh, were either taught or taught uh, the story about Adam naming the animals and you completely missed the purpose of the story? Because it's not a story about naming the animals. What is the story really all about? Now, yeah, okay, uh, let's think about this. Um, what I would like you to do is just turn on a 3D picture tube in your head, and I want you to see the story of Adam naming the animals, and I want you to see what the story really is all about. So while you're warming up those uh, picture tubes, so to speak, the flat screen TVs, um, well, while you're doing that, we do know two things absolutely about Adam, correct? Number one, we know he was incredibly intelligent. Adam was incredibly intelligent. After all, think about it. He had a perfect human brain. Now, if you think you're smart with a, uh, a fallen brain, how smart would you be with a perfect brain? You know, I'd like to correct something, by the way. Uh, how many of you have heard evolution say, well, you know, you only lose, uh, excuse me, use 15% uh, of your brain? Ever heard stuff like that? This is absurdity. It's absolute absurdity. There's two reasons for that. Number one, how would you know? <laughs> Think with me. How would you know we only use 15% of our brain? Think about it. In order to make that determination, you would have to be able to compare it. Hello. <laughs> you know, when I'm actually teaching at university classrooms, I say, if the phone goes off, it better be God. But, but think with me for just a second. You know, first of all, how would you know? Because you would have to have a perfect human brain to compare it to. Now, there's only been a couple of perfect brains. One, Jesus. The other one, Adam. Hello. Now, I'm going to throw Eve in, too, by the way, ladies. Because under perfection, hers was perfect, too. So there's only been three perfect human brains, and we don't have them to compare it with, right? Now, I agree, we don't use all of our brain as God originally created it, but maybe we use 85% of it. Hello? So beware of these absurd statements that evolutionists have. And besides that, when they make that statement, they defeat themselves, because according to evolution, you only evolve what you need. Well, why would you evolve a brain that could do 100% and only use 15% of it. It's illogical and it's anti-evolution. And so they kill themselves when they use that argument. Hello? But Adam had a perfect human brain and he was incredibly intelligent. Number two, we know he had a complete whole language. He was, well think about it, he was able to walk and talk with God, is that correct? Now, the last time I looked, God knows all the words. Hello? And aren't you kind of glad? Yeah. So we know that Adam had an incredible intelligence and he had a complete whole language, correct? 
And think with me, when God said, I want you to name the animals, did, did God say, here's the list? No, he said, you've got enough names in your mind, you've got enough words in your vocabulary, you name them, is that correct? Now that those flat screen TVs are all warmed up, I want you to see in three dimensions the story of Adam naming the animals, and I want you to see what it's really all about. And so are you ready? So God tells Adam, I want you to name the animals, and since sin does not yet separate man from a holy God, Adam goes, yes, sir, you did. And he starts to name the animals, right? Now, I think after about probably maybe the first five or six pairs of animals goes by, Adam is starting to get just a little frustrated around here. What do you think? Hello? Apparently, those flat screens aren't quite warmed up yet. Okay, I think after about, say, 50 pairs of animals goes by, Adam is starting to get really frustrated around here. Is that right? And uh, I think after that, he, he does this. I said, God, could we have a, a little conference over here on the side? You know, we're going to go over on the sideline. It's sort of a football thing, right? Hello? Y'all yep. have heard about football, right? <laughs> so um, he says, God, could we have a little conversation here? And he goes, God, I've noticed that everything comes in right shoes and left shoes. And I've noticed I'm a right shoe. Uh, Where's my left shoe? And God says, excuse me, boy, but I thought I said name the animals, and since sin does not yet separate man from a holy God, and goes, yes, sir, you did. And he goes right back to naming the animals. Are you all starting to see this here? Yeah. So, and then I think after maybe a hundred pairs of animals go by, Adam is getting seriously frustrated. Hello? I'm not so sure you all are seeing this, but I hope so. Um, what is the story of Adam naming the animals really all about? It is not a story about naming the animals. It is a story of confirmation. God is illustrating to Adam. Because what does it say? There was not found a helper suitable. Correct? So what is God doing? He is saying to Adam, don't worry, my son. When I make her, she's going to be perfect. Hello? When I make her, she's going to be perfect because as you can see, I've done it for everybody else perfectly. And this is a story of confirmation. It's not a story about naming the animals. But there was not found a suitable helper, correct? And so what happens? Well, what happens, we have the very, very famous verse 221 of Genesis. If you take a look for a second... Um, because there was not found a suitable, uh, a helper, that's verse 20, uh, we have verse 21. Now, verse 21 is on my top 10 list of the most misunderstood, most abused, most mistaught verses in the entire Old Testament. Um, if you think about it, this is a story of, uh, well, we talk about it being Adam's rib. That's the story of Adam's rib, right? Um, but but I want you to think about this for a moment. Verse 221 in Genesis. What happens because there was not found a helper suitable for Adam? We have the first four medical firsts in human history. As a matter of fact, do we, do we have anybody here that you are directly or indirectly related to anybody in the medical arts or sciences? So for instance, do we have any medical technicians here? No medical technicians. Any nurses? One nurse, thank you. Uh, medical doctors. 
Medical action. One. Uh, one. Okay. Okay. Uh, any drug dealers? <laughs> yeah, you know, anybody involved with the medical arts or sciences in any way? Well, for the three of you that did hold up your hand, um, this is where your life's work starts. This is where the medical arts and sciences starts, is in Genesis 2.21. And let's just see what happens. So it says here, God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. I mean, that's what you have, basically, correct? But here we have the first four medical firsts, and it's the teaching about Adam's rib. Now, some people think it's actually a Tracy and Hepburn movie, but... Some of you are old enough to know what I was saying there. But, but it says there uh, that God caused him to go into a deep sleep. So this is the first general anesthesia in human history. Number two, God performs the first surgical operation in human history, right? He opens up the body of the man, takes that material, puts him back together, correct? Um, and, well, this is the first and only male pregnancy in human history, And Adam was delivered by C-section. Hello? Apparently you are not really seeing this, okay? But I want you to think about something. If you're not following me, God gives each and every one of us gifts. But he gives us different gifts and different mixes and so forth. Is that correct? Now, one of the gifts that God gave me, I didn't deserve it and I didn't ask for it. He just gave it to me in his grace. But one of the gifts that God gave me is I see things in three dimensions and parallels that most other people don't see. Now that's just a gift from God. I had nothing to do with it whatsoever. But if you don't quite follow with what I've just said, let's just think about it for a second. What's the parallel here? Now again, when it says here in the Hebrew language that Adam was put into a deep sleep, the word in Hebrew is much more like coma. Would you agree that a coma is a sleep that sometimes people never wake up? Is that correct? And so a coma is similar to a near-death experience. Would you agree? And wouldn't you also agree that we have an example, physical example in the Old Testament, upon which a spiritual truth is taught in the New? Is that correct? Come on, folks. We often have a physical example in the Old Testament upon which a spiritual truth is taught in the New, Right? So let's think about this. Uh, when God performed his surgery, he cut open the body of Adam, removed material, closed him back up. Now God's a perfect surgeon. There's absolutely no possibility of infection here. But please tell me, in your own mind, do you think it would be possible to cut open a human body, remove material, close it back up again without at least the shedding of a few drops of blood? Excuse me? Would that be possible? Oh, so if you open up a human body, you cut it open, you're going to get some blood. Is that correct? Think with me. What does it say in Genesis 2.21? Adam had to almost die, shed some of his blood to get his bride and the family that would come from their union. Is that correct? What about the New Testament parallel? Doesn't it say that the man, Jesus Christ, had to die completely, shed all his blood to get his bride and his family. Hello? Yeah. So these things really aren't so strange if you just think about it.
But of course, the big problem for most people is that one word translated rib. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that word in Hebrew, rib, translated as rib, actually it has 10 major nuances in the Hebrew language. And these 10 major nuances can be categorized in three categories. So let's think, what does this word actually mean in Hebrew? Well, the first category consists of six nuances. And the word means something curved in general, but not the rib in a man's rib cage. It means something curved in general, but not the rib in a man's rib cage. For example, it can be used to describe the round end of this piano, or the round end of a round table, or the round end of a cul-de-sac street. It can be used to refer to the arched ceiling, a, a arch curve holding up a ceiling at, say, a cathedral, someplace like that. It has six nuances of being curved. It, it can be used to describe the stars at night stretched above our heads from horizon to horizon. So it means something curved in general, but not the ribbon of man's ribcage. The second category, well, it has three nuances. But this is where things get really interesting because the word means something straight and very, very strong. Did you hear that? Straight and very, very strong. The three best English words to describe what this word means probably would be a thick, heavy wooden timber, a thick, heavy wooden plank, or a thick, heavy wooden beam. So timber, beam, plank. Something that is strong and straight, not curved at all. The third category has only one, excuse me, only one nuance. This is why it is translated rib in the Bible. So as just as fast as you can, just I want you to have those TV pictures back in, well, warm them up again. They can't be that cool. And in your mind, I want you to see any old three-masted wooden sailing ship you have ever seen in your life. I don't care whether it's in a movie, a real ship, a drawing, but in your mind, think of any old three-masted wooden sailing ship you have ever seen and think of it in three dimensions. And then in your mind, cut it in half. Turn and look into the hull. What is the shape of the rib in the hull of an old wooden sailing ship? Well, it starts here, goes in and down, but then it goes back out again until it comes back in, until it meets the keel or the spine of the ship, which is why it's called a rib, correct? And so the rib in the hull of an old wooden sailing ship isn't U-shaped or C-shaped, it's S-shaped, hello? So what does this word really mean? The word really means that which gives support. That which gives support. What had God promised? I'm going to make an equal who will complete him. Is that correct? And what was the material God used? That which gives support. And God did not take a rib out of the body of the man. 
God took all the material necessary to make the body of the woman from out of inside the body of the man. And I can prove it. So also, too, I want you to think about something. Um, Well, if you think about it, woman was made from living material. Now, let's think about the difference between how the man and the woman came into existence. Now, man was made out of dirt, correct? And some women still feel that way about it. Right? But God removed living material from his body. Is that right? As a matter of fact, think about it. Is there anywhere in the Bible where God breathes nefesh into the body of the woman? No. No, because the material was already alive. It was unnecessary. What does it say? It says that God took that living material. Now, again, don't you treat living material differently than you do dirt. Is that correct? Come on, folks, you pick up a bucket with a well, pail of dirt, you do that differently than you do a kitten, a puppy, a baby. Is that correct? Oh, dear. <laughs> well, I mentioned that I also teach in medical universities on occasion. And uh, in Russia, uh, for instance, I'll t- tell the students about transplant surgery. Now, in Russia, they don't have transplant surgery because they have no blood bank. And uh, therefore, they don't do organ transplants in Russia. Um, but I explained to them about heart transplant surgery, for instance, here in the United States. And I explained to them that when you take the heart out of one body cavity and you put it in another body cavity, it's considered bad form if you drop it. <laughs> so you do treat living material differently than you do dirt, is that correct? Yeah. And woman was made from living material. And God says that he took that material and says he fashioned it into a woman, that, that he fashioned into the material that gives support which he had taken from the man, correct? And so God takes this living material. He doesn't have to make it alive, it's already alive. He simply changes its shape and form into that of the woman. And then what does God do? He takes the spirit of Eve, created beforehand, puts it inside her body, and she becomes the first complete whole human woman in human history. Body, soul, and spirit. And then it says that God brought her to the man. Now, would you agree with me, if you have that translation, it says God brought her to the man. Now, first of all, doesn't that, well, the big word is sounds perfunctory, all right? But, But doesn't that sound abrupt? You know, God brought her to the man. Doesn't that just kind of sound abrupt? Oh, come on, folks. It sounds like, well, God put her in a basket, left her on the doorstep, rang the bell, and ran, doesn't it? You know, come on, here, take her, she's yours, I'm out of here, all right? But again, this is the problem of translation versus interpretation. Because the word that is translated, brought in your Bible, in Hebrew actually means to bring a special gift to a special person. To bring a special gift to a special person. Now I would like to see if I can recreate within you tonight something that I do believe has happened in your life. So, well, well, has there ever been a time in your life when you were able to buy, make, procure in some way or another the perfect gift for somebody very special to you. It might have been a parent, it might have been a grandparent, maybe a spouse, uh, or a really, really special friend, okay? But was there ever a time in your life when you were able to buy, make, procure the perfect gift 
for somebody very special to you. You ever had that experience? Well, please tell me, in getting that gift for them, isn't there a part of that, the anticipation of what it will be like when you give them the gift? Is that right? Come on, you find the perfect gift. Part of getting the gift is the anticipation of what it's going to be like when you give them the gift, right? Okay, for example, uh, I'm teaching, I teach on five continents and so forth, and I find a, a perfect gift for my wife. Uh, this actually happened to me in Brazil a few years ago. I found the perfect gift. Uh, I was going to give it to her for her birthday, which is unfortunately just before Christmas for her. But, uh, but I'm, I'm in Brazil, and I found the perfect gift. Now, I know it's unique. I will not find it later, um, and I will not find it cheaper. Come on, folks. I'm Scottish. If you don't understand that reference, the Scots are so frugal, we're the ones that taught the Jews how to do it. <laughs> so I find this perfect gift for her. I know I'll not find it again. It's unique. I won't find it later, and I certainly won't find it any cheaper. I either have to take advantage of it then or I lose the opportunity, correct? So I got the gift, but it's six months until her birthday. And so what happens? Well, I go home and I hide it in the closet and I pray to God she doesn't find it. Hello? Yeah. But in getting the gift six months ahead of time, there was an anticipation of the wow that's going to happen when I give her the gift, correct? Yeah. But what happens three months later? Three months later, I'm halfway to her birthday and I think about that gift hiding in the closet. Hello? And what happens? Well, anticipation starts to well up within me. Are you familiar with anticipation welling up within you, right? Oh. And then what happens? Well, two weeks before her birthday, I start thinking about that gift hiding in the closet. And the anticipation starts to well up within me. And I start thinking about what I've got to do. You know, I, uh, I might want to order flowers. Uh, I've got to get a card to go with it. Got to get a really nice presentation box to put it in, so forth. Uh, get some really nice wrapping paper, you know, the stuff better than Hallmark, you know. And uh, come on, ribbons and everything like that, you know. And, and one hour before I give her the gift, the anticipation wells up within me to the point I get an ache of anticipation right there. Am I the only one? Hello? I just... So you know about getting an ache of anticipation right there? Well, think with me. God cannot put within me something he does not have or cannot do. And God had an ache of anticipation. He had the perfect gift to give the, this guy, but he had to wait to the perfect time to give him the gift. And, uh, well, let's think about this. Would you agree a gift is not a gift unless you receive it? Excuse me? Come on, I, you know, God gives the gift of salvation to everyone, but only those who accept it receive it. Is that correct? He provides it, but they've got to accept it. And so a gift is not a gift until you receive it. Is that correct? And so, well, Adam has to accept this perfect gift or it's not his, right? And I find this interesting because the story of Adam receiving the perfect gift is recorded for us in the Bible. 
As a matter of fact, uh, there's a quotation of what Adam said. If you'll take a look at verse 23, you know, what Adam said to receive the gift is recorded for us. Is that correct? Now, in my home, I have a scriptorium of ancient Bibles, and I, I study many different Bible translations to get the best understanding of them. And uh, I find it interesting. You know, uh, Genesis 2.23, uh, in almost every English translation, almost every English translation, it is translated in 1611 Shakespearean English. I think really it's just tradition. But when you read it, you have to really read it in 1611 Shakespearean English. And so if you'll look at verse 23, and the man said <clears throat> something like this. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Good, I didn't want any sympathy applause. Um, <laughs> but please tell me, didn't Adam just confirm what I told you earlier? Did he say this is a bone taken out of my body to make the woman? No, he said this is all the bones and all the flesh taken out of my body to make the woman. Is that correct? And Adam confirms what I said earlier. That God took all the material out of the man's body to make the woman. And Adam receives this perfect gift. And what is the last thing that we're going to talk about? Well, God performs the first marriage ceremony in human history. Now, we should think of God being at all in every marriage ceremony, but here he is actually performing the service. Hello? Of course, there were no bridesmaids or best men. Apparently, some of you have to think about that. <laughs> but, but, let's read 24. Notice it says, for this cause. Now, let me make a statement that is not the statement that you are probably thinking I'm going to make. But anytime you have, in any document, the terms, for this cause, because, or therefore, remember you're speaking about a logical construct. So anytime you have, for this cause, because, or therefore, it's a logical construct. It says, because of what I have just done, because of what I have just taught, what I've just said, because of this, therefore that. That because of what I've just done for that cause, therefore this follows. Are you with me? So it's a logical construct. And God says, because of the things I have just shared with you, that because of what he has done, he says, because of that, a man shall leave his father and his mother, speaking prophetically, of course, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now the word to cleave, we still use it today. The verb to cleave means to come to a knife edge. To come to a knife edge. Isn't there a big meat knife? We still call it a meat cleaver. Is that right? And we call it a cleaver because it comes to a knife edge. Uh, we have a video available for you out there on what happened at the time of the flood, showing the Bible's absolutely accurate about the details of the flood. And the title is, The Waters Cleaved. Because in Genesis chapter 7, that's what it says in Hebrew. The waters conceptually knifed through from below at the beginning of the flood. 
And so we use the word to cleave in a variety of ways, but it means to come to a knife edge or to knife through something. And so I want you to think about this. Conceptually, God says that marriage is to be like a knife blade. Yeah, I know some people think it's sticking in their backs, but, <laughs> but God says marriage is to be like a knife blade. Now I want you to think with me for just a moment. If you'll look here for just a moment at me, I want to show you how is marriage like a knife blade. Well, when you think about it, it's really quite simple. So if you'll look at my left hand for just a moment, think of my left hand as being a knife, okay? And the handle of the blade is towards me, and the point of the blade is towards you, and the edge of the blade is up, okay? So here's the knife, but point towards you, edge up, right? Now, how is marriage like a knife blade? Well, a, a knife has a right side and a left side, correct? And a marriage has a man and a woman, in spite of what Massachusetts says about it. And some of you need to lighten up a little bit. <laughs> but tell me something. In marriage, what's supposed to happen? Now, in marriage, they're to form a knife edge. Please tell me, isn't there a place right along the edge of a knife that you can no longer say it's right side or left side, it's just edge, is that correct? Yeah. Ah. And so God says marriage is to be like a knife blade. The man and the woman do not lose their individuality. There is always a right side and a left side to the blade. But in the covenant of marriage, they are to come together and form a knife edge in which they are just one. Why? Why do they become one flesh? Now I want to, you know, I told you I had a brain stretching ministry. Now, why do they become one flesh? Because that's the way it was in the beginning. Think with me. God made Adam, his body, with enough material for two. But he made one body with enough material for two. He added the nefesh, the soul, intellect, emotion, and will making that one body alive. And then he unites the spirit of Adam with that body. And he becomes the first human man in human history, body, soul, and spirit. But then what does God do? God surgically separates the one body into two. He doesn't have to make this one alive because it's made out of living material. He simply transforms the shape into that of the woman, correct? And then he takes the spirit of Eve and puts it inside her body, and she becomes the first female human, body, soul, and spirit, both with infinite and eternal value and worth. And then what does God do? He reunites them back into one flesh through the covenant of marriage. So why do they become one flesh? Because they were one flesh surgically separated into two, then reunited by covenant back into one. And then I'd just like to say this before we end. Every one of us that are Christians has had exactly the same experience. There's a time when man and woman were united with God in one, in perfect harmony and relationship. Adam and Eve could walk and talk with God in the garden because sin had not yet separated man and woman from a holy God, correct? But what happened? Sin separated man and woman from God. Surgically separated them. 
But God provided another covenant, the plan of salvation, by which we can be reunited with him again. And so when you start thinking about these parallels, they're not so strange after all. Would you agree? Well, I want to thank you for coming out tonight. Tomorrow night, remember, we're going to be talking about the issue of time. I also want to say that I've only done 60% of the message because it is a school night. I understand that. I need to get the kids out. But if you want the rest of the message, it is available at the table for you. And the church is providing that to you. So... With that in mind, I do answer questions before and after every session. I love to have fellowship, meals with people and so forth. If you're interested, just let us know. But if you've got any more questions tonight, please see me at the table. And um, Bruce, are you closing us out tonight in prayer or somebody else? Somehow he seemed a little reluctant there. I don't know. I... Anyway. Well, you know. I... Oh. Yes, you'd... yes, I do. Ooh. Wow. Yeah, be careful there. Standing in front of people is my <laughs> second most favorite thing to do. Well, and uh, you're certainly going to get their attention, I must say that. <laughs> so, Thanks, uh, folks. Yeah. All right, let's close in prayer. Or applause, that's okay, too. All right. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. We do thank you for the, the gift and institution of marriage. Uh, we pray that we are faithful to that uh, creation that you gave us. Uh, We just ask that you be with us tonight as we depart, keep us safe, and we just thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.